You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. I'm going to be honest with you. I did not know how beneficial fiber was prior to this conversation. I wouldn't even been able to tell you that fiber was only found in plants. And if you didn't know that, surprised you learned something and what we're one and a half minutes into this conversation. I'm excited for the episode though. I had a blast researching and preparing for this conversation. It had been a while since I dug deep into a health-focused subject. I believe our last was Dr. Jennifer Reed in August when we talked all about sleep and looking at the numbers. I know you're interested in health topics. But knowing the holidays are right around the corner here, I figured I'd throw something out to you that I feel like is fairly easy, getting adequate levels of daily fiber. Joining me today on the podcast are co-founders of Fluorosophy, an organic soluble fiber supplement. Megan Barnett and Lee Carson created this company after Megan stumbled across the incredible benefits of soluble fiber and began using it in her functional medicine clinic. Megan and Lee both believe in a science-based approach to alleviating health issues and focusing on preventative health in order to stay out of the medical system. Getting adequate daily fiber, particularly soluble fiber, is one easy step someone can take. If you want to know all the benefits of fiber and what foods you can eat to get a suitable level, you're in the right place. We'll be discussing that plus other health-related topics like Megan's opinion on intermittent fasting and an explanation on what the heck microbiome is. If you're a listener of the show and you haven't left us a rating and review, I'd really appreciate it if you did. And if you're new, welcome. Sit back, relax, and let's learn something new together. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the former peanut butter and marshmallow fluff eating lover, creators of what was going to be called Perfect Poop, and longtime best friends, Megan Barnett and Lee Carson. Over-caffeination and dark chocolate. It doesn't seem like you guys are too bad there um, talking to two health nuts, which I'm very impressed. Uh, excited to, to get into more of this conversation. We're going to be talking about fiber, and that's really cool that I'm going to dive and get really niche into a specific kind of health topic like this. I know at Philosophy, your guys' mission, I guess, is to educate people on the right variety of soluble fiber can really be a tool for better health at any age. And, you know, being a 20 something, thinking that fiber was really just for grownups or grandparents really to help with digestion issues. It was a lot of fun getting to research and get deep into fiber. I feel like I know a little bit and I'm hoping that you guys can even educate me a little bit more today, but let's start a little bit more high level than that. Let's just talk healthy living in general. Lee, something that you gave me in our prep conversation was per preventative health. And you said you're personally motivated to stay out of the Western medical system as much and as long as possible. This is largely based on an experiences with my mom over the last five years. Can you expand on your experiences with your mom and what you meant by that? Yeah. So about five years ago, my mom started having, it was neurological in nature. So she needed a significant intervention from a specialist. And it's really hard to get actually appointments with the neurology department. And so her health was declining very quickly. We went through many rounds of trying to get appointments. Ultimately, she needed to go into the emergency room to get the care that she needed. She was ultimately presenting with symptoms that were like rare aggressive dementia. So she spent two weeks in the hospital locally here was able to be discharged really with no diagnosis. We spent the next year traveling to the Mayo Clinic, trying to get to the bottom of why this seemingly healthy, you know, 69-year-old was having these symptoms. She'd done, quote, all the right things pretty much her whole life, you know, generally speaking. Anyway, specifically in neurology, there's a lot of gray. Actually, an MD told me that, who was a cardiologist. She was like, I wouldn't touch neurology because it's so gray. And lots of times there's things that you just can't do. And it's hard to figure out what the problem is. She's like, cardiology may be totally different because it's, it's physics. It's a valve, right? We fix it. So my family spent a lot of time in this gray area, navigating hospital systems, navigating insurance, navigating tests that weren't 
yielding any sort of real result. And it was actually here in our backyard over at St. Vincent's that in, when we she was in her second significant hospital stay for a couple of weeks that an internist just happened to uncover an over-the-counter medication that she was taking on the regular that was actually leading to a significant heavy metal poisoning in her blood. So here we are, you know, they've sold their home, they've moved, they've changed their lifestyle totally. You know, we were thinking we're going to skilled nursing and potentially nursing home for her care. And here it was, you know, something that was just missed and something that she was taking as an over-the-counter medication that she thought was okay because a doctor had told her to do it. So as soon as we stopped taking that medication and she went through a chelation process, you know, she ultimately returned back to, I would say, 80% of her normal self and off they go. And she's 73 now and, you know, living a pretty normal life. But seeing that, so so why I want to stay out of the Western medical system is because I saw, so first of all, over-the-counter medications, prescription medications, like my hackles are up about that, right? You need to know what you're putting in your body and what those active ingredients are and the things that they can be doing, right? And then also just our Western medical system's ability to really triage what's really going on. How did we do so many heavy metal tests and miss this one specific heavy metal, you know, flew all over the country, did all the things. How did we miss this? It was literally when you're in the hospital, the hospital has to feed, like they have to give you any medication that you take, whether it's prescription or over the counter. So so her first hospital stay when she was in such an awful condition, the nurses were actually giving her the thing that was causing the problem. There is a time and a place, right? And I, I'm not saying that, you know, I don't like, there is a time and a place sure. where you need to do that. I just personally want to take good care of myself so that I can stay as far away from that as possible. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I, to reiterate what you were just saying there too, you are not saying that medicine is, or people are out to do anything wrong with medicine, but it is way easier to prevent something from happening than to fix something that did happen in this situation. And I am with you. I'm somebody that wants to live a long time. And I know in order to do that, I really have to think about the preventative side, not necessarily the improvement of where medicine is going to be going in the future. So Megan, let's flip things over to you. Being a dietitian now and working in functional medicine, it is very hard for me to imagine you and, you know, jeans and boots and drinking Coors Light and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the transition from general contractor into dietitian. Sure. Well, I, I grew up in a family situation where the kids did a lot of what I would consider hard labor, which retrospectively allowed me to learn about building and construction. And I liked that. But the culture that you're in when you're in that type of world, when you're a contractor, it's it's toxic for a couple of reasons. But I was working on late 1800, early 1900 homes and properties. So it actually was toxic by nature of the materials I was handling. And then the people that you're surrounding yourself with are Coors Light drinking, cigarette smoking, boot wearing people. And so, you know, you can't beat them, join them. But really, I, I come from a family of healthy people and my parents are still at 65 and 71, extremely healthy and they don't have to work that hard for it. So there was a lot of taking my health for granted. That's what I would say in my 20s was I just genetically was doing well. I felt great. I didn't have to take very good care of myself to feel good every day. And then the crash happened where I had my first child at 26. I started to not be well. I was still in contracting. I was not drinking Coors Light or smoking, by the way, anymore as I was bearing children, but had my second kiddo at 28 and then went through the 2008 recession. And the stress of that actually triggered me into a pretty significant autoimmune disease and flare, which also was a mystery, much like Lee was saying with her mom, nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. And it was a lot of doctors and specialists. And through that process, I actually decided to leave construction because the stress was very high and it wasn't healthy. It wasn't healthy for myself or my family. And I went back to school and the drive to go back to school was really about my own health and my kids' health and trying to uncover the mystery of 
you know, what are, what are these symptoms telling me about myself? What are my kids' symptoms telling me about them? Because I obviously passed my health on in many ways to them. And I think retrospectively, not realizing that a lot of the choices I was making in my 20s <clears throat> shifted parts of my health. And so what I passed on to my children was not as optimal as I would have liked. And so, you know, I've spent the last 16 years trying to repair that damage in their bodies and my own. Hmm, fair. If you could take back one of those decisions or habits that you had in your 20s around health, do you have one in particular that you're like, yep, I wish I didn't do that? Oh, only choosing one. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it would be diet, I think. And that, that says a lot because a lot of my habits were not awesome, but I really was not eating a nourishing diet, but I was eating a very, very high carbohydrate diet. And the high carbohydrate diet was not necessarily resulting in me being overweight, but it was really shifting my microbiome. And what I now know is that your microbiome is one of the primary things you pass on to your kids, unfortunately or fortunately. So we see diseases passed on generation to generation in large part because of the microbes in the gut. And so now that I have had so many assessments of my own microbiome and my kids' own microbiome, I know that the diet I chose to live on because I felt okay and didn't see the connection between what I was eating and my own health at the time ended up shifting what I passed on to them, which then became their basis for their health and their microbiome. And when you say microbiome and gut, I hear that and it seems like something that has really popped up in the health space over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, especially since I have become more familiar with it. Can you expand on that a little bit more and maybe even take it a step further? Like if you were explaining it to me, like I was a teenager, yeah, some of the concepts that, that I might need to understand whenever you say microbiome and gut health in general. Sure, sure. I'd love to. You know, one of the things that we don't talk about enough is that what is inside of your intestines, that digestive tract is actually considered outside of the body. It's a hollow tube in reality. And the cellular structure is similar to your skin. So if you think about your skin, your skin is a barrier to the outside world, right? It's protecting what's inside. So the nasty stuff outside doesn't get in. It's also what the intestinal lining is. And so it, it is the same cells as the skin cells, and then it has some protective layers. And then within that, that hollow tube, we have billions of microbes. And those can be bacteria, viruses, protozoa, which are single-celled parasites, fungus, et cetera. It reminds me of a garden where you can have a lot of things growing and you can have some weeds, but if the weeds take over, then, then they strangle out the things you're actually trying to grow. And that's the balance of the microbiome that is based on healthy microbes and then microbes that maybe are kind of jerks, but they can be there. You know, they, they, they don't necessarily do what's right for us, but they also aren't that big of a deal unless they are out of control. This microbiome is, is kind of pulling the strings like a, like a puppet for a lot of our health, for our neurological health, our blood sugar balance, our metabolism, inflammation. And we have about 70 plus percent of our immune system in that lining of our gut. So the barrier of the gut needs to be integral. You need to keep the actual lining strong because again, it's preventing things from getting in to the body. And, and when I say in, I mean into the bloodstream. And the microbiome, as it metabolizes, is one of the factors in keeping that intestinal lining strong and integral because it has a, the microbiome has a byproduct called short-chain fatty acids, which is the food for your intestinal cells. So you can't have one without the other. You've got to have a balanced microbiome to feed the intestinal lining. You have to have a strong intestinal lining to protect what's inside of your body from the outside world. And then you need to keep your immune system mellow. Let's put it that way, right? So you have all these immune cells on your intestinal wall. You don't want to overstimulate those with infection. Great example would be like E. coli, right? You, you have some horrible E. coli infection when you're traveling and all of a sudden your body tries to excel that infection. If you've had food poisoning, you know how bad that feels, right? That's your immune system on that intestinal lining saying, no, thank you. You are not allowed to enter. So 
the gut health is this combination of that barrier and a microbiome that's functioning well and is balanced. That's a really good breakdown. And we'll probably circle back to some of those concepts. But Lee, I want to shift things back over to you really quick as well. Before we get into fiber, I was talking about preventative health and kind of your passion for that. And outside of fiber, one thing, another thing around health that you are really excited about and jazzed about is lifting, weightlifting, um, strength conditioning and training. What does that look like in, in your life? So I feel like, you know, strength and conditioning and training and exercise in general, it can be so confusing. What do we do? How do we do it? And I think the biggest thing is just to have sort of a, an idea of what the elements are that you need to have every week in your sort of plan or calendar, right? So I think that consistency is important. So strength and conditioning is a huge part of my regular week. I lift weights, pretty heavy weights, three times a week. I have a program. My husband is a personal trainer, so he writes a custom program for me that's designed to support the things that I like to do, which is run and hike and mountain bike and paddleboard and be active with my kids. So having sort of specific exercises designed for me to lift weights, but then there's also other things that are important. So cardiovascular health is really important. Every week we need what's called steady state, something like going for a walk or a hike or maybe a slow jog or a bike ride. And then also intervals need to happen. So both of those things, steady state and intervals need to happen a couple different times a week, right? And then in addition to that, there's also this mobility component where we keep ultimately what we want is our muscles to be the proper length so that we have the proper range of motion. When you see impingement in shoulders or hips or even ankles, it's typically because the muscle is not the right length. And so we want to keep, we want to keep our muscles the right length we don't want to have to fix them later, right? So having that exercise plan, that strength and conditioning is super important. And I can go, I can really geek out on why that's so important for bone density, right? For, you know, your muscle is a huge metabolic organ. It is exactly how you metabolize the things that you eat. So mm -hmm. it's really important for integral, the sort of the structure of your body physically, how you, you know, how it supports your skeleton, right? And it's also important for the structure of your body, like how you metabolize the food that you eat. But those other things are very important. Heart health with the cardiovascular side of things. And again, two sides, right? We all want to tell ourselves, oh, it's okay if we just go on a 10 minute walk. I read it in the paper. It's totally fine. It's better than nothing. It is better than nothing, but it is not, it's not the whole picture. If you really want to have preventative health measures in place. So two kinds of cardio, lift heavy weights, keep up your mobility work. That's mm. my sort of overall prescription that I incorporate throughout the week so that I can stay on track. Makes sense. And in terms of weightlifting, do you have mm -hmm. two or three favorite exercises that find themselves in your customized plan? And I know using the word customized there, things might be changing in and out pretty frequently, but are there some, some core exercises that are always critical or key for you? So there's, there's four movement centers that good strength and conditioning really centers around. So it's the squat. So that's pretty obvious. It's a squat, right? You're sitting, right? There's a hinge, which is typically some kind of a deadlift. Typically, there's a push and there's a pull, right? Those are most often done in the upper body. But so squat, hinge, push, pull, right? And there's many exercises that can be done within each of those movement centers, but those are the ones that you want to make sure your program is hitting, right? So if you do those things, then that should be setting you up to have, you know, the customized exercise within that, that sets you up for success. And you have um, some examples of push and pulls. So what would be a good push? So a push up is a push. Okay. Sometimes a sled push, right? If you had a turf, I know that that's really, you know, a thing. If you were doing even just a banded exercise where you're extending your arm forward and back is a good push. So a pull would be any kind of a row, right? So if it's a bent over row, you're pulling, you know, if you're using a weight, you're pulling that back up. Does that help? Yeah, no, I think that helps. And I think people are often looking for some kind of framework like that and kind of those four general buckets. And I'm guessing you are a few keystrokes away from finding examples, both with weights in, in the gym. And also if you're, you know, if you have to stay at home or you don't have access to a gym or you can't afford to go to a gym as well, it seems like there are probably 
tons of body weight exercises or you know, ordering a simple band or something like that that can really engage some of those push-pull hinge type exercises as well. Do I have that right? You totally have that right. And I would say one of the gifts of the COVID era is that the online fitness industry has exploded. There's a ton of free information out there on the interwebs for those types of things, for new exercises and motivations and those types of things. Okay, cool. So let's get into fiber. I, I think a lot of the conversation has got to center around this. I'm going to approach this conversation like we know nothing about fiber because honestly, up until about two weeks ago, I didn't really know a whole lot about fiber. I did not realize really what it was or what part it played and any benefit whatsoever in terms of general health. So who wants to take maybe just the what is fiber, kind of taking it from a broad standpoint, who would be best at that? Sure. Fiber is the indigestible part of plants that generally gives it structure. And when I say indigestible, yes, you can eat it and it will move through your digestive tract, but you can't actually break it down and absorb it and use it in your body. It moves all the way through to your colon and into your toilet. And I think I, if I remember right, you explained it as like the snapping or the crunching part of a carrot. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when you think about a plant structure, if you look at something growing in the ground, what holds it up? It's its skeletal structure, really. And the, and, and the insoluble fiber, and I know we're going to get into the two different types, but the insoluble is more the structure of, of the plants, how they're held in, in space. And then you said plants, so you can't get any fiber from animal products, right? No, no, there's I, no, if I'm fiber. eating a steak, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be getting any fiber. No, <laughs> nope. There's no fiber. <laughs> in it. I was just thinking that, oh, nope, nope. Can't see a way for that to happen. No, there's no fiber in animal products at all. Okay, cool. And then you brought us into our next topic as well, soluble versus insoluble fiber. So mm-hmm. what's the difference and you know, how does, how does that play a part and what's happening in your digestive piece? Sure. So insoluble fiber, like I said, it gives it gives a plant its structure. It, it does not break down in water. Okay, so this is the big disseminator between soluble and insoluble. Insoluble fiber is not soluble. It does not break down in, in liquid. It moves through your body largely how it goes into your body. And soluble fiber, it, it attracts water. So chia pudding is a food that has become really popular. And so if anybody's played with chia, they've seen what happens when chia seeds get wet. They become gelatinous. That's in large part because of soluble fiber, because soluble fiber likes to attract water. It does that within your body when you consume it. It attracts water and it attracts other uh, fat-soluble molecules, which is why it becomes kind of magic. So let's talk a little bit more about that then. So with these, so if I'm getting this right, with these kind of binding agents of being a soluble fiber as well. It's absorbing things or taking things with it as it moves through the digestion system, like fats and sugars and toxins potentially as well. Generally, yes. So long ago, when I was having some health issues, I had a doctor say to me, well, your gut issues will probably be solved with more fiber, have more salads. And this is the education that's important to me is to, is to share with people why salads don't actually fix things. They're great. You should eat them. But that fiber that comes from vegetables generally moves through, it bulks up your stool, and it actually irritates the lining of your colon in a good way. That irritation is what increases peristalsis to help you have better bowel movements, basically. Soluble fiber, on the other hand, moves through. So let's just take it stop by stop because it's kind of like a a little bus stopping at its bus stops. It hits your stomach, its first stop, and it starts to expand. It starts to absorb water and expand. And that's why you can become fuller faster when you're consuming soluble fiber in your meals or as a supplement because of that expansion. So the pressure within the stomach tells your brain, I'm full. I don't need any more food then it moves into the small intestine. And this is where it starts to kind of do its thing. As it slows down the digestion and makes you feel full, it slows down the absorption of sugar or glucose in your food. So it balances your blood sugar. It helps you have sustained energy because you're not absorbing that sugar too fast or that carbohydrate too fast. So you get better blood sugar balance, you get better energy. But when that fiber hits your small intestine, 
there is a triggering to the gallbladder when, when food is there that your gallbladder should now excrete or secrete bile into the small intestine. So that happens almost every time you eat, but definitely more so when you eat fat and the soluble fiber binds that bile. It binds to it. This is, this is kind of the big ta-da of soluble fiber right here. Bile is a molecule that we use to absorb fat, but it's also the garbage truck of our body. So our liver attaches excess hormones, toxins, all sorts of molecules really to bile. And then bile on its own is made of cholesterol. So if soluble fiber binds the bile, it actually pulls it into the colon instead of letting you absorb it, which pulls estrogen, toxins, and the cholesterol that made that bile out of your body. The last stop of soluble fiber bound to bile, potentially, maybe not bound to bile, is the colon where it feeds the microbiome. It is a food source for your healthy microbes and it absorbs water in an adaptive way. So let's say you lean towards constipation and you're consuming soluble fiber. It will actually pull in water to make your stool a little more fluid or softer. If you lean towards diarrhea or looser stools, it's going to attract that water to make your stool firmer. So it's adaptogenic in nature. The end product is better bowel movements. That may be what you see if you start taking a soluble fiber or if you eat more soluble fiber in your diet, but it's doing all of these other incredible things along the way in its journey from your mouth all the way to your toilet. That is wild. I did not realize all of this. And, and once again, I, I, I knew kind of the bowel movement piece of this, but you're through this description, you're also painting the picture of some other benefits, you know, like the hormones or some of the toxins that get mopped up along the process. Exactly. In terms of insoluble fiber, is it useless or does it also have some use? No, it definitely has some use. You know, the, first of all, all the food that contains insoluble fiber is good for you. (laughs) So, you know, plants are good for you. They have vitamins and minerals and polyphenols and all sorts of other fantastic things that you need. And they come with insoluble fiber. That insoluble fiber is, I think of it kind of like a broom. It sort of, you know, sweeps down the intestines. It gets to the colon and it bulking of the stool is important that the bulking action is important for our health and the stimulation on the lining of that colon. So you have a bowel movement's important. You can have the most amazing poop, but if it won't come out, that is a problem, right? So insoluble fiber helps it come out. We want it to leave the body. It is your way of getting rid of waste. Hmm. When did you have this aha moment, Megan, in terms of fiber in general? Like when did this pop up in either you or your journey of health of like, whoa, I need to spend some more time learning about this? You know, I have an undergrad in dietetics and a master's degree in nutrition. And at no point did I learn this through my education. So I really? just, yeah, nope. So oh my gosh, <laughs> it's a, it's a bit of a shameful story, but I was, my, my youngest sister is vegan. And she said to me at one point, Hey, I know you don't like nutrition trends, but have you heard of the bean queen? And I'm like, I can't even talk to you right now. I don't, please do not tell me how to do my job was sort of my first response, which was really not cool. And later my mom said to me, you know, I know you kind of brushed off your sister, but maybe you should check this out. This woman is really smart. She has a master's degree in nutrition. She's doing a PhD. Well, so I, I did start reading The Bean Queen and I started listening to this woman, Karen Hurd's information, and that she is who really introduced me to soluble fiber. The more I learned about it and the more I dug into the research, the more motivated I was to use it clinically in my, in my clinic here in Portland, Oregon. What was cool about that experience was that I got to see all these different diagnoses, all these different symptom presentations, and then tailor soluble fiber around what I was seeing, everything from teen athletes that I work with all the way through people in their 80s that were struggling and literally everything in between. And just by adding soluble fiber, I was seeing these incredible improvements in people's health. That was the, the moment that I called Lee and said, hi, I have a great idea, but I can't really do it without you. So what do you think about starting a company with me? Because it was one of the most pivotal shifts in 
in the outcomes I was seeing clinically, it was working better than most anything else I was doing. And Lee, what was your relationship with Megan up until that point? And how did she convince you to start a company around soluble fiber? (laughs) Well, so Megan and I have known each other for 15 years. We actually did a yoga teacher training together. That's how we met. She was pregnant with her second kiddo. So we've known each other for a long time. Luckily, I've been sort of along her journey. And so ultimately, I've been a friend and a patient of hers for many, many years. So very luckily, I was actually one of those patients that she had given the soluble fiber to. And I'm going to just back up one second. So the thing is that a lot of people can't tolerate the beans, right? And so that's when Megan started mixing different kinds of soluble fibers together, like in a powder form so that that her patients could experience these soluble fibers. Because to say to somebody, you need to eat three cups of beans in a day to get your 20 grams of soluble fiber, my math might be totally wrong on that, is really tough. That's just sort of throwing that out there, but it's something like that. And so I was one of her patients, as was my son. And she was like, you know, you really need to do this thing. So what started off as sort of black bean brownies for my (laughs) son, right? Then she's like, (laughs) then she drops this off for me. And, you know, I am, I'm 45 and I have struggled with significant sort of hormone imbalance sort of as I move through that perimenopause phase. And so I've done things. I've done, tried all the things, right? I've worked with naturopaths, acupuncturists, all the things. And so Megan gives me this soluble fiber and, you know, I start eating some chia pudding and all of a sudden, like my hormone imbalance is better than it's been with anything else that I've tried. When she said to me, so I think we need to do something with this because, you know, when she was putting the blends together, not only was she, you know, customizing the things for her different patients and what they needed, but she was also able to pick the fibers that she knew weren't going to be irritating. When she came to me, I was like, I feel great. Yes, I'm totally in. Like, no questions asked, even though we both have other businesses and plenty of things to keep us busy. I was like, this is amazing. And, you know, you just listen to all the other things that I didn't even know it was helping me with. I just knew I felt better. And it was significantly relieving some of the symptoms that I was having around my cycle. So I was all in, Justin. Mm. So it helped balance hormones and that. And what were some of the effects of that? I know you mentioned you felt better, but what were some of the signals that clearly this is working? Without getting too graphic, maybe, maybe that's a personal question as well. <laughs> no, I'm, you know what? I'm happy to talk about this because I think it's something that actually, as I started to share this product with many of my friends, both near and far, I think that one of the things that perimenopausal women, I'm just going to use the 40s as this perimenopause label. I think one of the things that's actually very true is that us 40 something women don't understand some of the symptoms that we're experiencing are related to our cycle. We just think that they sort of are. So some of those symptoms would be certainly around mood, right? Sort of more irritated that sort of that week before. Sometimes I may have used the dragon emoji sometimes. (laughs) And, you know, there's things around sort of energy level, low back pain, tender breasts, Those are some of the biggest things. So many of my symptoms have alleviated, Megan, if I am forgetting something. But I mean, those were the things that I was feeling. It's really the mood, the tender breasts. I feel like there's other things that were bothering me, but now I don't even remember what they were. Yeah. And a lot of the women I work with, even in their 20s, there's swelling involved that's really irritating and uncomfortable. Then the other thing is there's shifts in how we metabolize and our blood sugar balance is it can be dysregulated based on our hormones. And so there's a, there's a metabolism component to this and a body composition component to this. And of the, a large part of my practice is, is women. Almost all the women I work with that are in their 40s and 50s have been having symptoms since their adolescence or 20s. They just, there's a saying I have in the clinic and it is just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. But because we normalize a lot of the symptoms that both males and females have earlier in life, we just say, oh, yeah, it's just normal. That's just, that's what it's like to be 18. That's what it's like to be 22. That's, you know, we say that. It's unfortunate because those are early signs of some sort of imbalance, even acne. So many of the people I see were put on Accutane. Acne is a sign of an imbalance in your body 
you should be listening to that. Your body is talking to you, right? And those things, as you get older, they, they shift. They're like shapeshifters. Like you, you may not have acne in your 40s, but trust me, you're going to have some version of a hormone imbalance if you didn't deal with the root cause. And so I think we've found, you know, one of the reasons we got so excited about soluble fiber, because up until I learned about it, you know, a few years ago, I think I could only relate it to my grandfather who had a, a cardiovascular event and his doctor said, you know, eat oatmeal. So I knew there was a cholesterol component, but I didn't understand why until I finally learned about what it was doing, you know, from the mouth all the way down and why it could improve all these symptoms. I didn't, I wasn't able to relate this tool to so many of the things we see earlier in life. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Honestly, as I've found through health in general, specifically diet, your body is giving you signals what is working and what is not working. And so many of us, like you said, live through such a long period of time, just normalizing some of these signals that could be fixed through diet, not only soluble fiber, but other things as well. Like the amount of stories that I've heard that I had inflammation in my knee and it has never gone away. And then all of a sudden I changed this about my diet and it magically went away. It's, it's unbelievable to me. And it, it is kind of crazy that your body is trying to tell you that something's not right here. Absolutely. We talked about a lot of the benefits, you know, hormone balance is a huge one, gut health, body composition, like you were mentioning. You also gave me skin, hair, hair and nails. What, how does soluble fiber help with that? Couple of ways. I mean, the, the soluble fiber is affecting the microbiome, which is affecting your hair, skin and nails. But the mm -hmm. binding of excess hormones and toxins, that whole bile relationship, that removal of excess hormones and that removal of excess toxins then relates to healthier everything. But we see that as healthier hair, skin, and nails, glowing, strong outsides, right? And that's because there's less irritating the inside. And when we talk about toxins, there are endotoxins and exotoxins. Exotoxins are toxins that come from the outside world. And then endotoxins are toxins that your body is making so that anything in excess can be considered a toxin and that would include hormones. When you have a buildup of extra hormones, no matter what those are, you'll see that symptomatically on the outside of your body. So let's get into a couple of the actionables now. I think we've convinced people that they should consider, if not highly encourage you to put soluble fiber into your routine diet. How much should they be focusing on? Is there a gram level that they should be shooting for? Yes, we recommend, and this is based off of research where research studies that have shown a reduced risk of, now we fill in the blank, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, cardiovascular disease, obesity. It, we have research on all of these things. It's about 20 grams a day of soluble. Now we recommend that you eat at least 40 grams a day of fiber total. So that'd be 20 grams insoluble, 20 grams soluble. But I want to speak to that a little bit because there are soluble fibers that can really irritate your gut. You'll find them in a lot of the processed foods now, like inulin and chicory root, corn fiber. Those tend to have a gas floating effect. So I, I caution people to be really careful with those. But you can get a lot of soluble fiber in your diet with beans, lentils, chia seeds, flax seeds. We get them in our whole grains if you tolerate them. I work in a population of people that have a lot of sensitivity to food. And because of the trends towards keto and paleo and other diets that maybe restrict some of these soluble fiber-based foods, we just tell people... It's a great exercise to do a little assessment of what you eat over a couple mm -hmm. days and see how much soluble fiber you're getting and then supplement if you need to and try to aim for that 20 gram a day mark approximately. Okay. And what did you guys learn? I know you guys did a, at least a small sampling of, of people that you had track their, their diet for three days so that you could get a benchmark or an understanding of how much soluble fiber they were consuming. What were some of the, the findings that you found from that? Sure, sure. I mean, really, so we got these great food journals and some of people were eating, you know, very healthy, sort of minimally processed whole foods diet. 
But I think on average, the soluble fiber, even one of our one of our sample samplers was a vegan. And I would say unless somebody was making a concerted effort with the beans, legumes, you know, lentils, right? And knew that they were doing that, it was really like seven grams of soluble fiber. So these are people that if you looked at their food journal, you would be like that, they're killing it. They're doing a great job from an overall dietary standpoint. But it's it's really tough to get that. That's what we learned ultimately is that, you know, most of them were just fine on the total fiber scale of things. You know, they were at 32, 35 grams of total fiber, but they were only getting, you know, seven, five to seven grams of soluble fiber. Okay. And fruits and vegetables both have fiber in them. And it sounds like legumes, beans, they're kind of the density ones if you're looking for soluble fiber. But if I eat an apple, am I getting some soluble fiber in that as well? In most vegetables and fruits, you'll get a little bit of soluble fiber. So maybe half a gram to a gram. It's not going to be a heavy hitter. Gotcha. Brussels sprouts have more there are a couple of, of choice vegetables that may have a little more avocado. It is fairly dense and soluble fiber, but you get your, your heavy hitters are your legumes and whole grains. Yeah. I read an article too, and it said that on average, adults consume 16 grams of fiber. So that's not soluble fiber. They just condensed them both together. And they're saying that only 6% of them are hitting their recommended fiber levels. 6%. So like one in 20 people are actually getting the amount of fiber that they need, not only the actual soluble fiber within inside of that, I'm guessing that num- that 6% number is even smaller than. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, the soapbox I like to stand on because I think it, it's an important education for everybody is this is so easy. It is one of the easiest things you can do is focus on fiber and soluble fiber, but the benefits are so wide ranging. And it's not just about prevention and not having a disease. Like as you know, and as you brought up in the beginning of the, this podcast, I wasn't thinking about my long-term health or prevention in my twenties. I was like, I feel great, but it would have supported my skin and my energy and, you know, things I was caring about and my hormones and not having nasty hormone symptoms in my twenties. And we use it for other things people are concerned about, like fertility, you know, even exercise recovery. And like I said, good sleep. These are things that are important at 20. They're important at 30. They're important at 80. You know, the, this is just such a game changer for most people that it just doesn't take a lot of effort, you know? Okay, fair. So I want to play a game. I'm going to throw a couple dieting trends out there. And Megan, you're already averse to dieting trends in general, but I'm interested to get your guys' feedback. Let's try to keep it at a, a yes or a no from the start. Mm-hmm. But if we need to expand on something, Let's totally expand on something here. Okay. Um, so let me throw one out. I'll, like I said, I'll get the yes, no from you guys right away. And then let's, let's decide if we want to go a little bit deeper on what we meant there. Keto, yes or no? Are you in or are you out? Justin, I, it is literally impossible for me to yes, no, these answers. So you might <laughs> it's too. I shouldn't have gave you a hard one to start with. I yeah. shouldn't have gave you a hard one to start with. How about, let's, let's drop keto. I know that's probably, that's probably a really tough one. What about dairy-free? Generally, yes. You're in on dairy-free? You know, I'm in the world of functional <laughs> medicine, Justin, so everything is customized. For the majority of people, yes. Okay, cool. What about you, Lee? For the majority of the time, yes. Cool. Intermittent fasting, are you in or are you out? Yes for men, no for women. Oh, okay. Lee? I am not, I don't feel like I have, I don't feel like I have a solid answer on that one. <laughs> What did you mean by yes for men, no for women, Megan? So men are on a 24-hour cycle. Your hormones are exactly the same every 24 hours. Just FYI, you are on a rinse, repeat cycle. I love that. (laughs) Us ladies over here, we are not. We are on like a 26 to 30-day cycle. And so that affects our cortisol levels, our stress response, omitting food, which helps your body feel safe. Truly from your nervous system, not from like a woo-woo standpoint, but your actual nervous system feels safe when you're fed. It's not wise to increase stress when your body's producing excess cortisol. So women need to be very careful about where they are in their cycle if they're going to skip breakfast. And the research that's coming out is actually showing that breakfast should probably be consumed by everyone. And if you're going to skip a meal, it should be dinner based on cortisol cycle. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely in on intermittent, intermittent fasting. I found it maybe three or four years ago. Works very well for me. Honestly, I'm a morning person in general. So it helps for me to just get in the zone and not necessarily have to worry about feeding myself until I usually break fast around 10, maybe 11 o'clock. And I usually try to end eating between five and six. Obviously, lots of social events usually conflict with that. Yes. And I'm not really super consistent on a 16 to 18 hour fast, but I shoot for it most days. I'm usually hitting 14 to 16 without necessarily thinking about it, but it works well for me. And I, I like your advice of, you know, think about some things here, but you know, me being a simple male, I, <laughs> I'm glad that, that you're, you're in on it for, for me at least. Yeah. It tends to work pretty well for men. I recently, over the course of this summer, had switched, had sort of closed my eating window a little bit. And I've been eating a breakfast before I do my workout, typically, you know, my cardio or my weights, And that has been a game changer for the quality of those workouts. You know, I still have probably a 12 to 14 hour window that I'm not eating in. But by having sort of a lower carb breakfast before I do that workout, I feel a lot better before, during, after all the things. So that's just my little anecdotal add to that. I, I, have, I have to just add this other thing because I think it's important. You're, for all of us, our cortisol is highest at the morning, in the morning and most of us are going to be the most potent in the morning. We're going to get our best work done, whether that's your brain or your body. Most of the people I work with, if they intermittently fast, especially the women skip breakfast and they eat until nine or 10 o'clock at night, right? They eat their dinner. They're still hungry because they're calorically deprived. They haven't eaten enough yeah. food for the day. And then they're snacking, they're gaining weight, they feel like junk and they're not sleeping well because they're consuming food too close to, to bedtime. It's harder because of social events and our, our routines and relaxation, but eat in the morning if you find that you make up for those calories at night and, and try to finish eating by five or six. You're going to be a lot more metabolically sound that way if you're, gonna, if you're going to close your window. Yeah. I found that personally with myself too. Four hours, kind of stop eating four hours before bedtime usually returns the best returns for me whenever I wake up in the morning. Absolutely. And honestly, I'll eat late at night or something, or if we go out for like ice cream or dessert and I like wake up at six and I am starving, I'm like ready to like get some food in me. (laughs) Yes. And if you, I wear a continuous glucose monitor all the time. So I have the advantage of seeing what my blood sugar does in the middle of the night. So if I, for most of us, if we eat too close to bedtime, we get these spikes spikes. all night long. So you don't really get good, good sleep and you're starving when you wake up. Mm. All right. Let me throw one more out there. We'll kind of keep it somewhat away from the food that we actually ingest, but calorie counting. Are you in or out on calorie counting? And Lee, let's start with you. I think that if you eat too much food, you will gain weight. You know, we work with a lot of people at our personal training studio. That's one of the main reasons they come to us. And there's a lot of things that we can do on the exercise front. But if you eat too much food, you're eating too much food. You know, it's very scientific in that way. I think understanding sort of your trends in your normal everyday habit is great. I can't say that I advocate for watching those numbers on a regular basis and sort of that hyper-focusing on the MyFitnessPal situation I think is unhealthy, but I think it is important to have an understanding of what your general trends are. And sometimes you need to have a return to baseline of like, oh, I have some new habits in my nutrition. I am now eating 500 more calories a day. Doesn't matter, y'all. It's going to catch up with you. It's science in that way. So we're very good at giving you gray answers, Justin, <laughs> on all this. But I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it depends, but it is a science math thing at the end of the day. Megan, anything to add to that? I would concur with Lee that I think it's a good thing to do on occasion to give yourself a check-in and not every single day. And I would say the same thing about weighing yourself. Mm-hmm. For that reason, it's a great thing to check in with and it's, it can become pretty destructive if you're doing it all day, every day. I would agree. I put on an Apple watch and it's got the step counter in there and very similar to that as well. It made me very aware of how many steps I would normally get in a day. I could probably tell you in the thousands where I'm at now that I've worn it enough and I've checked it enough. So I try not to continuously check it all of the time because I kind of know by the end of the day. I'm at 7,000 or I'm at 12,000. Like I can, I gauge and I, I can feel it there. I found myself, you know, maybe two months into wearing this 
having a lot of anxiety around hitting that 10K mark there and getting there. And I realized that's probably negatively impacting me more than going out and getting the extra 1200 steps I needed in order to get the 10K there. So I kind of let that go a little bit, become more peace with it. And it, it is really great because I know when I've had a day where maybe I'm working at my desk all day long and I'm like, mm, I bet I'm at 4,000 right now. And I check and I'm like, yep, I'm at 4,000. I need to get out and go for a walk. But I try not to stress too much about hitting a specific number anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So wrapping up this conversation, I want to give you guys the opportunity. Of course, you mentioned that you have a supplement, a soluble fiber supplement. You worked with Lee to get this up and going. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, we developed a supplement called Fluorosophy. We have three different blends. Those blends were built basically on the the toiling in my kitchen that I was doing to try and help different patient populations. So one of them is aimed at people that suffer constipation. That one is called Loosen Up. The other one is aimed at people with loose stool, which is called Firm Up. And then we have one that's really built for overall daily use and prevention. And that is called Daily Fix. And the fibers within them are are tailored to the goals, you know, of those three different brands and or those three different blends, but they generally are non-irritating to the gastrointestinal tract and and safe for most people to use, even if they're suffering from IBS, SIBO, et cetera. And that was one of the reasons that I was compelled to to develop this is because it was so hard to find something on the market that worked for everybody safely. Yeah, and we got a discount code, the struggle is real 20 um, that you can use to, to get a discount if you go and check out their website. All of that will be in the show notes as well. Lee, do you have a, since launching your products, do you have like a highlight moment or something that brought you a lot of joy, maybe customer feedback or review or a success story from somebody that just warmed your heart and really kind of filled your cup in terms of continuing to push forward with this product? I think one of the things that's been that's filled my cup the most on this journey is I have a pretty strong group of fellow mom friends that are in my kids school community and their support of this product. I, they have a special code and they can pick it up on a doorstep or they live very close so I'll deliver it to their house and their support of this product and then sharing it within the wider circle has been really great. And the reason I say it's really great is not, I mean, they would support it because they love me, but they are still here because the results that they're getting that keep them excited about the product and supporting Megan and I on this journey. That's awesome. That's really fun. I'm excited for you guys. One more question around supplementation as well. I just want to get a clear understanding. When should we supplement versus when should we lean on dietary fiber? That's a great question. And I think it goes back to assessing what you're getting in your diet and and the type of nutrition that works really well for you. So if you're a person that really tolerates soluble fiber-based foods like beans and lentils, et cetera, et cetera, like we spoke about before, it's great to do that maybe three-day diary and see how much you're getting and lean on supplementation if you're just not getting enough in your diet and if you can't find a way to do that. And again, if you're a person and there's so many people out there right now that are using keto diets and paleo diets, et cetera, and they're getting great health benefits from it. So that's a great time to supplement because you're not, it's appropriate for all of those diets. This supplement works with all of those diets without having to eat the high soluble fiber foods that maybe are irritating to you. And I'm guessing you guys have instructions or at least something there as well. But as I learned here, soluble fiber does absorb a lot of water. So I'm guessing you need to put some liquids down, hydrate yourself whenever you're taking these supplements. It's not only important to drink more water when you are introducing more soluble fiber, but it's important to go slowly. Your body will need some adjustment time to soluble fiber. There is a shift in your microbiome. There is a shift in your digestion. So we have a lot of instructions on our website for how to do this successfully and kind of how to find your profile. Why are you taking it? What are you looking for out of this? And how would you start? What time of day would you take it, et cetera? So there's some great resources on thinkfluorosophy.com. Once again, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll add the discount code there. Highly encourage you guys to go check it out. Final question for both of you. I don't know if this is going to be a joint response or if you guys want to approach this answer from different angles, but if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, 
what would you teach and how would you teach it? So I came up with two, but the first one that I'm going to talk about is really, I don't think that there's enough education around preparing whole foods for consumption. So here's what I would do. I would have a class. It would be 16 weeks. Every week we would meet in my beautiful kitchen lab and all the students would be delivered CSA delivery. Okay. And based on what they got, you know, their vegetables that or produce vegetables that come from a farm that's, you know, 30 miles away, they would meal plan and strategize what they were going to make with these things for the week. Okay. With the guide, of course, during the class. (laughs) So that's what I would do because I feel like we're, we're ultimately doing ourselves a huge disservice if we don't know how to cook with, you know, real live whole foods, right? Mm. From scratch. So it's a good sort of, I like the reversal of instead of making my list and then going to the grocery store, I see what is in season. I see what is fresh. I get, I get this. I can't just stick to my, you know, my normal list of whatever it is, I get to use these other things, which is also great for your microbiome to be introducing all those different kinds of plants in there. And so it's reverse meal planning is what I like to call it. So that's what I would teach for 16 weeks. So there. I, I don't understand why that is just a standard curriculum class. We frequently talk about the classes we wish we had in high school and college and just preparing meals for yourself in general seems like a really obvious one to me, especially if you introduce whole foods. I think that is honestly when I'm thinking about my cohort and my peers and my friends and myself as well, it is the intimidation factor around getting all of these fruits and vegetables and you know meats and whatnot and just not knowing what to do with them and instead turning to prepackaged products and obviously mostly processed products and or going to fast food or out to restaurants as well. And just not having a sense of control around cooking. And I think having some education in that space would, you know, severely lift us forward and, and all of that. So not all of us were raised in houses where, you know, we got to watch grandma or mom or dad or grandpa cook some amazing meals out of all of these different things. So many of us were raised where we picked up McDonald's that night and that's how we ate. So I was just going to say, and I think that, you know, something that's really important to consider is that the large majority of sort of causes of death in the United States are based on, you know, the things that we're choosing to eat and consume on a regular basis. They can all be tied back to that. So I think it's really important just to echo what you were saying. Go, Megan. (laughs) We have a, we have kind of a theory we base everything off of at my clinic, which is clean air, clean food, clean water. And, you know, to that end, if I had an opportunity to teach a large amount of young people something, I would give them the basics for how to translate their normal symptoms. You know, it's a language. Your body has its own language. What does a headache actually mean? What does acne actually mean? What does sinus congestion chronically actually mean? And when you can start to translate what your body's telling you and work backward from that instead of covering the symptom up, but really underpin where is that symptom coming from and why and how do I fix it and own it? It's really empowering and you catch things early so they don't turn into problems later and you can stay out of that medical system and you, you can just learn how to be well in your body. But it's medical mystery kind of stuff. It's sleuthing, it's investigation, it's a lot of fun, but it's paying close attention to what your body's telling you and not taking an Advil to cover it up. <laughs> I loved both those answers. Once again, I think standard curriculum classes right there. That's super obvious to me. Love it. I actually learned or started to listen to my body a little bit more through actually being a plant dad and realizing all of the signs that plants give off to you whenever they're distressed and realizing through that process that I also stretch for light or, you know, droop my leaves if I don't have the right water intake or turn red in certain things. It's it's really actually interesting how our bodies are sensories and that they can give you some really valuable information. You just got to listen. So great class. Really excited for you guys both to teach those at some point in time. You totally should. I appreciate you guys coming on The Struggle is Real. Megan and Lee, co-founders of Philosophy. Once again, thinkphilosophy.com. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Justin. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, 
head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website and those messages go straight into my inbox and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together.